This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. Well, that was weird. And I have absolutely no idea how any of this is going to sound like, so welcome back. <laughs> it's been it's been a minute, huh? Uh well, actually, I think it's been over a year, but you know, it, it shit happens sometimes. <laughs> uh, this little silly goose bit off a lot more than she could handle, and so I had to like take a little break. Uh, it's fine. Everything's cool now, and I can get back into um, hobbies, which just are basically researching true crime cases. It's an interesting hobby, but uh, Cabernet and True Crime is my passion project, so I am back. So here's a crash course of everything that's happened in the last year that you missed. Uh, Chris and I built a house, we sold a house, and then we got married in September, so we've been married actually for almost a year now. Uh, we also moved into said new house, and you'll see that as soon as I get the chance to sit down and record a new video, which is kind of in the works. I'm actually, there is no podcast closet, which is really sad, but there is kind of a podcast loft, aka my bedroom. And it's actually pretty delightful because this is the only place that's quiet enough to record. So I get to record sitting in bed. And you know what? I have exactly zero complaints on that aspect. Um, on a sad note, sweet Penny Girl, uh, if you remember from any of my videos, she actually crossed over the Rainbow Bridge in April of this year. Um, that was really hard. Uh, sorry for, I should have said trigger warning, I guess, for pet loss, but... Um, so she is no longer with us, but if you are on my Instagram, you've seen that we have gotten a new puppy. Um, the plan was to get a dog before she passed away, and that didn't exactly happen in that order. So we still kind of went ahead with getting the puppy anyways. His name is Nero. He is a Rottweiler, and he's a menace to society. He'll be five months in a couple weeks. So he's downstairs. He's actually been quiet, so I'll take it because he has not been quiet all day today. Um, he's cute, though, and honestly, he's a 10 out of 10 good boy. He's just a puppy, so um, he's living his best life, and he's actually pretty whooped from doggy playdates. Uh, he is also not a very helpful re research assistant. Uh, Penny was a very good help. She was a, wow, it's almost like I haven't done this in a year. Penny was a great research assistant because she would just kind of hang out and like watch true crime with me, and Nero never stops moving. Uh, he's just constantly in action and constantly trying to bite and chew on things. So it, it's interesting. <laughs> um, and I think that's really all that happened. Uh, I feel like a lot more did happen. I mean, but it really didn't. So here we are. Uh, in my hiatus, though, and I wanted to kind of preface this at the beginning of this podcast, I thought a lot about why this kind of stuff interests me. Um particularly why couldn't I have chosen a more happy and uplifting hobby? Um, maybe like knitting or um, baking, maybe. Um, and I, I really did some soul searching as I was preparing to restart this, and I narrowed it down to three reasons, which of course I'm going to tell you, because why would I bring it up if I didn't? So if you're new here, which is unlikely, but if you are, my name is Jana. I am the host of Cabernet and True Crime. I make true crime content on YouTube and sometimes 
well, it's actually primarily a podcast. Sometimes a YouTube right now because YouTube videos take a lot more effort. Not that podcasts don't take effort, but I don't have to physically look at myself for extended period of time. And I, that's, you know, when you edit your videos and you stare at yourself for a super long time, you really just can't do it. But so the podcast is kind of an unedited place uh, where we just talk smack about serial killers because they're awful people and should not receive any glorification. The YouTube channel right now is predominantly cold cases and just mysteries. Just, you know, to, there's there's definitely a, a separation between the two. And I've noticed recently that the true crime community has gotten a little heat, which my argument is when isn't it getting a little heat? But I saw I just it's I think it's been in the limelight a little more lately. Um, and I just wanted to put it on the table that I don't do any of this because I think it's cool or glorifying or whatever. And I actually had an interaction this week with somebody on my Instagram where I put up a video of not a video a post where it says. It was the Bugs Bunny no meme where it says when people try to tell me serial killers were hot. And somebody actually commented on it and told me to grow up because Ted Bundy was hot. And I just, no, we don't glorify serial killers here. That's absolutely disgusting behavior. And I hope that person is in therapy someday because you need to process some emotions. I don't know what you need to process, but maybe you need to think about it a little bit. Okay, so my three reasons now that I'm, you know, we're moving right along. Uh, reason number one is that I'm fascinated by the human brain and the human psyche, and I want to know in my brain what could cause a person to snap and decide to take the life of another. Honestly, to feel like they have that right. I guess doing this for me is educating myself of the signs or seeing if there's a pattern between that and what makes a person do this, which we know there is some type of pattern, which is the McDonald triad, which is the bedwetting, animal abuse, and pyromania. Um, with the added um, factor that sometimes there's a head injury involved as a child. And I find that fascinating um, just because there have already been several cases that we've even covered on this podcast where serial killers show these kinds of symptoms at a young age or in their teenage years. And I guess in my brain, would it be possible if you had a parent or a school teacher or somebody who would say, oh, shoot, these are all these signs, and would we be able to catch that earlier? Um, I don't know if that's really feasible or not, but for me, it's it, there's been so many cases where you've already seen it where you see a child who is obviously struggling. Could we have prevented any of it? I don't know. That's That's like the unknown, but you wouldn't know if you didn't try or if you didn't know to look for those symptoms. So it's kind of like the educational aspect of it is part of it for me, which is number two as well, which is the, I like the education factor. Um, the subject matter is gruesome and gruesome and upsetting. It absolutely is. And I, I can't pretend that it's not, but also pretending that these things don't happen, that the world is all rainbows and butterflies isn't helpful either. Um, I think everyone assumes that that won't happen to me, but you never know because it could. And I guess the education has a couple factors behind it, too. Like I said before, educating parents to be on the lookout if their children exhibit any signs, uh, for the general public to be aware that, like, you need to be aware that these things are happening in the world. You know, I mean, pretending like they don't doesn't make you immune to it and doesn't make you safe from it ever happening to you. And, you know, I just having that little bit of education and having that protection on your side is helpful. I mean, there are survivors out there who were, you know, on some level, I guess, prepared for it, who were able to fight back and get out of the situation. And I think looking at those situations could help more people 
you know, use that to their advantage in these types of situations. And then on the other hand, too, have you ever met somebody and thought, like, that person totally has the personality of somebody who might keep a person in their basement? And, like, I know there are some people who just kind of, like, exude that energy and they're probably not harmful. But at the same time, how many times have we seen it where somebody gets arrested for, you know, violent and just disgusting crimes and all the neighbors or their family friends are like, yeah, he was super weird and creepy and we didn't really like him that much and he was kind of an asshole. That happens all the time. (laughs) Nobody talks about these serial killers and says, oh yeah, they were, I mean, maybe 10% of the time they're like, this person was completely normal and we never saw this coming. But the 90% of the time, people all pretty much agree that, like, that dude was weird. And surprisingly, we're not shocked that this is what happened out of it. Uh, I think, you know, if we <laughs> maybe bound together and just, I guess, investigated those people a little bit more, maybe something positive could come from it. Uh, and then, well, because, you know, trust your gut. If, if, you, if somebody gives you vibes that don't feel right, your gut is probably right. They don't, your gut's usually never wrong in that aspect. That's human instinct. That's, you know, basic biology where your body's telling you that something's not right. And if that's the case, you need to listen to it. Um, And then lastly, and this probably goes for you too more than does here, but I cannot stand it when a case goes cold or isn't given enough attention because of the occupation or lifestyle or background or race of the victims. There are so many cold cases that this is happening with And a human life is a human life and should be treated as such. A lot of these women, and men in some cases, cannot control the circumstances that they have found themselves in. And I don't think it's fair that these, once again, usually women, are forgotten about or disregarded. And that is the last of my high horse. We will move on. So, I feel like I'm yelling. (laughs) I think that's everything I want to talk about in the intro. And I really can't believe we're on episode 54. Like, that's honestly a huge milestone, right? Like, we're over halfway to 100. Uh, That's pretty cool to me. Uh, It doesn't feel like we've done 54 episodes, but then again, I guess we totally have. So today's case is one that I can truly say I've never heard of before. And honestly, I really regret picking it (laughs) because this has been so difficult to research and get information on. And for the first one back after a year break, this is probably not the one for me to start with because my research brain isn't at the height of its capabilities. And a lot of the information in this was either wrong or in a weird order or had interesting, like, dates that didn't make sense, and it's, you will, you'll see in a minute, but, like, at the same time, I, I really should have, I went, I got too committed to this case before we even started, and then I couldn't just let it go, so here we are, but it's done, and it'll be posted on time, True Crime Thursdays, now, guys, it just flows better, so True Crime Tuesdays is dead, that's the way it goes, uh, True Crime Thursdays is where it's gonna be, because it just makes more sense for me, all right, so, we've all heard of H.H. H. Holmes and his murder castle. And his crimes from 1891 to 1894 are usually what coined him as one of America's first serial killers. But what if I told you that there was uh, something else amuck before them? And also, as a side note, H.H. H. Holmes, he gives like, everything about everything that and that just gives me a migraine just even think about I don't know how to explain it I just I don't even like talking about him so onward 
so this story is so old and so warped by folklore and just i what's the word for it it's it's just been blown out of proportion um so it's a little hard to follow like i said it's i've attempted to do my best with what i've got <laughs> and today we're going to be discussing the hart brothers and their crimes so our two key players are Joshua Harper, who eventually changes his name to Micaiah Big Harp, and William Harper, who eventually changes his name to Wiley Little Harp. For the sake of storytelling, and I'm promising you this is going to get very confusing, I'm just going to call them Micaiah and Wiley, but I'm going to give you the full scoop so no one can say that I didn't do my research, okay? From what I found... And I find this funny. Everything pretty much states that they know Micaiah was for sure born before 1768. <laughs> and Wiley was born for sure before 1770. But, like, there's a 20-year age gap in which these two men could have been born. So cool. Uh, there's, a different, there's a couple different theories about it and their origins into the United States. So theory number one is that they were born in Orange County, North Carolina, to Scottish parents. Stunning. And theory two is that they were actually first cousins, not brothers, who immigrated from Scotland sometime around 1759. In that theory, their fathers were brothers still, um, that led them into Orange County in 1761. Uh, so from what I've seen, which that even confused me... <laughs> <laughs> from what I've seen, most people believe theory number two that their their dads were brothers and they are actually cousins from Scotland and their their whole family kind of emigrated here. So we're going with that. Uh, so yeah, I just needed to tell you guys that there are two possible. So because the, they're called the Hart brothers, even though they're they're actually not brothers, they're kind of brother cousins, but not in the sense, not in that sense. <laughs> they just they've been known as both. Um, bup, bup, bup. so there's a lot of names and they're hard to follow because their dads were brothers and their dads also have very wild names. Uh, I mean, their dad's names aren't wild, but it's hard and the whole scheme of things is very difficult to keep all these names straight. Um, their dads were John and William Harper and they settled in the United States from Scotland in the mid-ish 1700s. That part we can all agree upon. And... Yeah, I gave myself a migraine earlier today and yesterday trying to figure both these things out. So, we're good. Um, it's not massively important to the story, but Micaiah and Wiley's dads were Calvinists, and that means in general Protestants, which is beautifully on par with the rest of what was going on. Um, in fact, branches of Calvinism like Baptists and Presbyterians are still super popular throughout the United States. Uh, West Virginia, where a lot of the story will take place, and North Carolina, where the family landed, are still predominantly Protestant even today. Uh, one thing that we really don't, that didn't go with the flow, though, I mean, it kind of did and it didn't, was the fact that um, the dads, <laughs> the daddies, I wrote for some reason, had pledged their allegiance and were loyal to the king of England. And in this rabbit hole, I learned what a Tory is, uh, which today means someone who supports a political philosophy that is based on traditionalist British conservatism. Um, I've heard Plumbella, if, if you guys play Sims at all, uh, she calls people Tories all the time, and I never knew what that meant, so now I do. Um, and in this aspect, they were just uh, loyalists of British America because they still had ties and beliefs to the king and Great Britain in general. As you may know where this is going, the American Revolutionary War 
or the American War of Independence, started in 1775, technically, um, not too long after these families arrive on U.S. soil. And it's suspected before that time that Micaiah and Wiley's fathers may have served in the Tory militias during the Regulator War, uh, which took place from 1765 to 1771, <clears throat> uh, where there were citizens that took up arms against colonial officials because they thought they were corrupt. Um, and that whole thing could be its own entire rant, and it's not that important. It, it is, and it's not that important to the story. I think a lot of that is speculation, too, because it's really hard to get a read on where these people, where, like, I, I don't know where they are or what they're up to to start off with, because, honestly, up until this point, and until Micaiah and Wiley start to really get into what they're about to get into, it really wasn't important what, the, these records weren't super important to keep track of, so, uh, so I, I kind of had like something happen in my brain where I went down a different rabbit hole because I could not figure out, they were saying that these boys were born in 1768 and 1770, and that is physically impossible because they go, it goes on to talk about what they were doing and all their crimes that started during the revolution. And which means they would have been five and seven years old during the Revolutionary War. And like, that doesn't make any sense because they were children. So I actually had to go and um, read most of a book. Um, it was pretty good, actually. It's just, it was written in 1922 or published in 19, did I say 1922? 1924. Um, and it's called Outlaws of Cave in Rock by Otto Rothert. And just to double down on my own uh, thoughts here, so I'm about to read you a passage from the Outlaws of Cave and Rock. Uh, but they double down on the 1768 and 1777 dates, but that I think that puts them way too young for everything that's about to happen. I'm just I'm going to repeat that for all of our benefits. I disagree with what I'm about to read you. But Otto Rothert said, The Harps were believed to be brothers. They were natives of North Carolina. Micaiah, known as Big Harp, was born about 1768, and Wiley, known as Little Harp, was born about 1770. Their father was said to have been a Tory who fought under the British flag at King's Mountain and took part in a number of other battles against the colonists. Before the close of the Revolution, and immediately after, many of the Tories living in the South Atlantic colonies fled toward Mississippi. Those who still sympathized with the King of England and continued to live in the old states were, in most sections, ostracized by their neighbors. It was to this class that the parents of the Harps belonged, and it was, therefore, in an environment of hatred for and by neighbors that the two sons grew up. About the year 1840, Colonial G.W. Sever, uh, son of Governor John Sever, in an interview with Lyman C. Draper, the historian, stated that Big Harp, when asked shortly before he was killed why he had committed so many crimes, which, plot twist, if you didn't know, that's where we're headed. Um, that's not part of the book, that's me. Uh, answered that he had been badly treated and consequently had become disgusted with all mankind. Uh, one, other one writer attributes their f acts of fiendish humanity to the fact that they were believed every man's life, whether good, indifferent, or bad, was predestined and that all wise had foreordained for them a hatred of humanity and a career of crime. Uh, criminologists may or may not agree as to the underlying cause of the great thirst for blood possessed by the harps, but the fact that they were the most savage and terrible characters in this period of American history cannot be dis dis disputed. So thank you, Otto Rother, for clarifying the situation for me, because I will admit I am still confused. I found another book which mentions the Hart brothers called Legends of the War of Independence, which was published in 1855. 
It's by a man named T. Marshall Smith. Uh, you can read the book online for free through an internet archive, and for the record, you can get the other book there too. This, I think, clarifies some more stuff for us. Uh, William, the son of John, was very stout, surpassingly strong and active, now about 20 years of age, commonly called Big Harp. Joshua, the son of William, was not so strong as John, but able to perform more feats of activity and great endurance. No one who was at all conversant with physio physio facial expressions, that's what that word means, and accustomed to form opinions of the moral traits of character from the lineaments of the face, the formation of the head, and the expression of the eye could look upon either of these young harps without being disagreeably and disgustingly impressed with the bulldog head and face of the former and the sly lynx or hyena appearance and head and face of the latter, now about 18 years old. Neither had received even the least literary cultivation or had been taught anything but the mere questions and answers of the Calvinist confessions and catechisms of the day. From their fathers, they received no examples of practical piety, no words of kindness calculated in the slightest to awaken final respect and cherish the sympathies and obligations of their humanity for their fellow men, never having enjoyed a father's look, but enveloped with frowns and seldom heard a father's voice in abuse of some one and most frequently themselves. So this, to me, says that during the, the start of the American Revolution, because the whole premise of this book um, is following Captain James Wood of the Continental Army. It's kind of seen from his point of view, um, going around talking about the war. So around this time, I'm assuming that the cousins, the Harp cousin brothers, were 20 and 18, which makes more sense to me at the time of the Revolutionary War. Um, he talks about how the Harp cousins joined a Tory rape gang that was in North Carolina. Um, and this was during the Revolution. And basically, they were loyalists, a.k.a. people who still favor the King of England over the Patriots, and also criminals in general who took advantage of the chaos and wartime to raise hell, raping and pillaging property, um, targeting the farms of the Patriots, mostly. Um, it seems like everybody kind of got a little bit of their vengeance, but mostly it was the Patriots who were targeted the most. They didn't technically or actually fight in the um, war, per se, because they were never issued uniforms, weapons, and they didn't get paid by the British government. But they still for sure acted in the violence and also robbed and looted the battlefields when the wartime activity was completed. They had a ragtag group of friends in their gang, uh, namely a number of renegade Chickamauga Cherokee, who were Native American group that separated from the rest of the Cherokee during the Revolutionary War. So in 1776, right when the war, um, right after the war started, the majority of Cherokee made peace with the Americans, um, but there were a good number of, of that followed the war chief. His name was Dragon Canoe, and they followed him southward, southward toward Chickamauga Creek, which hence the name that they were given. And it seems a few fractioned off into that group, and then some joined up in the violence with the Harps. Uh, here is a quote again from Otto Rothard. And uh, mind you that these are his words, not mine, and I'm just reading a quote from the book. Most of their time was spent with a few stray Creek and Cherokee Indians who at the time were ostracized by their tribes and were committing atrocities against their own people as well as against the whites. 
The harps joined the savages in their outrages and not only encouraged them in their bloody deeds, but gave them many demonstrations showing to what extent barbarity could be practiced. Asleep or awake, they were armed with tomahawks and knives and never took a step from camp without a gun. They were always prepared to shed blood for the satisfaction of shedding it or to resist arrest should any attempt be made to capture them. They lived like man-eating animals. The women as well as the men wore leather hunting shirts and moccasins made from the untanned skin of animals they killed. Uh, the Harps around this time lived near the village of Nickajack near Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they lived there for 12 to 13 years in total. <clears throat> they kidnapped a woman named Maria Davidson around this time, and she was part of their gang. And this time, crazy lena- crazily enough, the aforementioned Captain Wood um, that had gone around and had a book written about him, he had a daughter named Susan. Well, he didn't have her in that time, but that was, uh, that was weird. So she, he didn't, he had her already, and she was a, te- a teenager, I'm assuming, but she was kidnapped during all this chaos by the Harps, and she was wedded off to Micaiah. So the Harps continued to partake loosely in battles of the Revolution, um, pretty much right up until the British lost the war in Yorktown in 1781. And from after, after that, they kind of just skedaddled on out of there. So in 1794, see, this is a weird date. That date's not right, I don't think. The Harps abandoned their Indian habitation, before the Nickajack was destroyed in a raid by American militia. I think this is another quote from the book. The Hart brothers would later relocate to Powell's Valley around Knoxville, Tennessee, where they stole food and supplies from local pioneers. Um, And at this point, people are thinking that they have disguised their Tory past and were just kind of trying to blend in with the Patriots, um, and they changed their name uh, from Harper to Harp, I think. Um, that was a common loyalist surname in that area. So the Harps and their wives slash captives go off the grid for a little while from 1975 to, or, <laughs> 1795 to 1797 because on June 1st, 1797, Wiley gets married to a woman named Sarah Rice, which ends up in the Knox County marriage records. I had a really hard time finding anything about the Harps' wives, I would assume because after everything happens, they either changed their names or kind of went off. They had so many different aliases as well. Um, Like I said, Captain Wood's daughter was for sure taken against her will. She was kidnapped. Maria Davidson um, was kidnapped as well, to my knowledge. And Sally Rice is an unknown, though. I think she, she may have willingly married into and joined the gang on her own accord. I do not know that for sure. I'm not 100% positive. But I read in one article that it was suspected that Susan and Betsy were sisters, and that's completely wrong and inaccurate. It's also mentioned somewhere that Sally Rice was the daughter of a Baptist minister. But that's all I know about them um, pre, pre this time period. Uh, I have another quote from the Otto Rothard book. Um, about the year 1795, the two men, accompanied by Susan Roberts and Betsy Roberts, which Betsy Roberts is Maria Davidson, just she had a couple, she had like several names, uh, they left North Carolina for Tennessee. Susan claimed to be the legal wife of Big Harp, whereas Betsy merely posed as such. Big Harp, however, claimed that uh, both women as his wives, and the Harps cared as little for the laws of matrimony as for any other laws, and the legality or le- or illegality of anything they did was a matter of indifference to them. <clears throat> Around this time, which was 1797, for those who forgot, because I can assure you, 
I already did. The Harps and their willing and unwilling ladies began a crime spree through Tennessee, Kentucky, and Illinois which at this point is pretty on brand for them. I think, though, fighting in the war, officially or unofficially, changes people, but their actions now, I think, speak to what they were doing beforehand. Like, I mean, I think being in the in a war, especially in this time period, um, warrants some amount of violence. I, I feel you have to have some type of violence in you to do these things and fight in a war, but, like, I just, I think they were always more violent than they needed to be, like, to the point where I think they got they got pleasure out of it, like whatever that, maybe not pleasure, not the right word, but that satisfaction out of it. It was, it was satisfactory for them to do that. It, it did something for them. Um, and I know that it was more violent times in general and like there's a, a widespread war, like a revolutionary war happening. So I, I get the violence was kind of the thing and it was maybe more of a violent time frame, but at the same time, I, I don't know. I, it's, I wasn't alive back then, so I guess it's, all, it's completely all speculation to me, but I, I feel like this whole time period just kind of violent in general, and then these, these guys are just extra violent on top of it. Anywho, um, they didn't stay in Knox County very long because in 1797, the same year that the marriage license was issued, they got ran out of town for stealing hogs and horses. They were also at the time accused of murdering a man. The body had been, quote, found in a river, covered in urine, and ripped open with the chest cavity filled and weighted down with stones. Just a wild, just a wild thing to do to somebody. Um, I question the urine aspect a little because I'm not sure how they would know that if the body was found in a creek, but I guess that's just me thinking out loud. Um, apparently and allegedly this became the harp's calling card for their killings. And at this point, they run north into Kentucky, entering the Cumberland Gap, which I didn't know that what I didn't know what that was. Um, I've sang it and I've heard it in the song Wagon Wheel, but uh, I'm learning today, right here, right now, that that is actually like a real place and a real thing. And in case you didn't know, like I didn't know, it's a pass in the Cumberland Mountains, which are part of the Appalachians. So fancy that uh, you really do learn something new every day. On this journey, I think. They were thought to have killed a peddler named Peyton and took his horse and goods. And I think a lot of this is hearsay as well. Um, I feel like they really were bad people, obviously, but at the same time, I don't know how much of this is really something they did or if it was just attributed to the violence of the time and they were a great, super popular scapegoat to blame these things on. These are just my thoughts. Um, like I said, the records aren't that great. In December, they killed two travelers from Maryland, and then there was a man named John Langford who was on his way from Virginia to Kentucky, and he he died. Um, a local blamed the Harps, alluding that they, of course, had to be the source of the assault. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. So the Harp brother cousins were captured and put into jail in Danville, Kentucky, which, if you look up the type of building it would have been, it was on my Instagram on Tuesday, I believe, it genuinely doesn't seem like it would be that difficult to break out of, in my opinion, which, as as I get ahead of myself, is exactly what the Hart brother cousins do. So they escape. Uh, there was a gang of people set after them, and during that time, the son of the man who sent the authorities in the direction ends up being found dead. And, of course, they know it's the Harps, 
this one you could probably attribute to them because they had a reason. They had, they, other than just sheer violence, they had a reason to kill this person. Um, and there was a $300 reward out for the harp's heads, which is about $7,500 in today's money. We get another beautiful description of these men, because um, there are no existing portraits of either of them. So Micaiah Harp is six foot high of robust make, um, about 30 or 32. He has an ill-looking, downcast countenance, and his hair is black and short, but comes very much down his forehead. He is built very straight and is full-fleshed in the face. When he went away, he had on a striped nankeen coat, which is like a pale yellow cotton material, dark blue woolen stockings, leggings of drab cloth and trousers of the same as the coat. Wiley is meager in his face, has short black hair, but not quite so curly as his brother's. He looks older, though he's really younger, and has likewise a downcast countenance. He had on the, sa- the coat of the same stuff as his brother's and had a surtout coat over the closed-bodied one. His stockings are dark woolen ones and his leggings of drag cloth. While on the run, the Harps killed two men, last names of Edmonton and Stump. They also killed three men who were encamped near the mouth of the Saline River in southern Illinois. Uh, from here, they made their way to the Cave and Rock, which is a natural cave above the Illinois side bank of the Ohio River. From 17, a little, another little history lesson, because it's, it's relevant. Um, from 1790 to 1834, Cave and Rock was an outlaw lair and headquarters of river pirate activity in the Ohio River region. And I googled what is a river pirate, and it told me that a river pirate is a pirate who operates along a river. So, (laughs) thank you for that definition. Really appreciate it. Uh, That did a lot for me. Um, So, at the time that the Harps show up to Cave and Rock, Samuel Mason who used to be a Revolutionary War Patriot captain, was leading a gang of river pirates in that area. He had a couple other pirate layers over the years, but in 1799, he was here. Um, he was actually there from 1797 to 1799. Uh, there was a sign on the entrance of the cave that said, Liquor Vault and House for Entertainment. Um, once the Harps end up there, actually, though, the manhunt for them abruptly stops, and it appears they've established some sort of safety. With their wives and children in tow, the Harps hold up with the Samuel Mason gang, who preyed on slow-moving flatboats making their way along the Ohio River. River pirates. While the Mason gang could be ruthless, even they were appalled by the action of the Harps, and after, a mur- the, after the murderous pair began to make a habit of taking travelers to the top of the bluff, stripping them naked and pushing them off, Samuel Mason forced the Harp brothers to leave. Um, some people from the Cave and Rock left with them, including Peter Alston, who was the son of the counterfeiter Philip Alston. And I'm unsure where in the story, like, uh, some of these things happen because they're kind of moved all over the place. So it's all kind of like legend that these things are attributed to the Hart brother cousins. And so we're, we'll move on. And I. Just a caveat that I'm not exactly sure when in the timeline these things occur. So they, um, I mean, they're obviously still either murdering or being blamed for murders at this point. So they killed a farmer named Bradbury, a man named Hardin, and a boy named Coffee. And soon more bodies were discovered, including those of William Ballard, who had been disemboweled and thrown in the Holston River, James Brassel, who had his throat viciously slashed, and John Tully. 
John Graves and his teenage son were found dead with their heads axed in south-central Kentucky. And in Logan County, the Harps killed a little girl, a young enslaved person, and an entire family they found asleep in their camp. Uh, a few miles northeast of Russellville, Kentucky, Big Harp reportedly hit his infant daughter's head against a tree because her constant crying annoyed him, the only crime for which he would later confess genuine remorse. That same month, a man named Trowbridge was found disemboweled in Highland Creek, and when the Harps were given shelter at, um, they, were, they were sheltered at a home um, of the Stegels, uh, the pair killed an overnight guest named Major William Love, as well as um, Mrs. Moses Stegel's four-month-old baby boy whose throat was slit when he cried. When Mrs. Stegel screamed at the sight of her infant being killed, she was also murdered. The harp killings continued as they fled west to avoid capture by a new gang of people that were organized by a man named John Leiper. Uh, the, um, Moses Stegall, whose wife and son had been killed, was also in that gang, um, everybody wanted to avenge him and his family. And I say, well, they, it's really loose as to what, who all's here, right? Because um, some accounts say that the wives and, and children were there, but some just say the duo, that it was just the brothers there. So I, I'm really not sure who all's involved in all these situations. Um, so I'm just saying they, I'm not entirely sure. Um, so while they were preparing to kill another settler named George Smith, uh, the, the posse, this new posse that was formed by John Leiper finally tracked them down. And that's on August 24th, 1799. So they told the Harps to surrender. <laughs> of course they didn't. So Micaiah Harp was shot in the leg and back by Leiper, which was the leader of the group, um, who soon caught up with him and pulled him from his horse, basically subduing him with a tomahawk. Um, as he lay there dying, Micaiah Harp confessed to 20 murders, which is, I don't know if that's a high ball or a low ball for any of this. Um, while Harp was still conscious, Moses Stegall slowly cut off the outlaw's head. Later, the head was spiked on a pole. Some, some accounts call it a tree at a crosswords, crossroads near the Stegall cabin where the crimes against the wife and son had happened. Um, and it's still known as Harps Head or Harps Head Road along a modern-day highway in Kentucky. Uh, Wiley Harp, though, wasn't caught by the gang and rejoined with Samuel Mason and his river pirates at Cave and Rock. And he did that for a long time until four years later, uh, Samuel Mason's gang was caught and he might have been captured along with the rest of the gang, but nobody recognized him because he gave them a false name. So both Harp, Wiley Harp, the younger brother now, or the younger cousin now, um, and Samuel Mason escaped. But later on, uh, Mason was shot. So even after that, Wiley and Peter Alston was the, the counterfeit son. Uh, yeah, Mason, eventually he dies. <laughs> He, uh, they don't know if he was killed or if he died from the wounds that he got from getting shot. But so Wiley and Peter uh, try to take his head to get their bounty for the reward. But both men were recognized and arrested. They escaped because, of course, they did. But they were rearrested shortly after. So they were both tried and sentenced to be hanged. And in January of 1804, Wiley Harp and Peter Alston were executed by hanging. 
Their heads were cut off and placed high on stakes in the Natchez Trace, which it was a warning to other outlaws. Um, the Natchez Trace is a historic forest trail that basically goes from Nashville, Tennessee into Natchez, Mississippi, um, linking all those rivers, which I'm assuming is a route that the Harps took often in their lifetimes. And you're probably wondering, to f make this a happy ending, uh, what happened to the wives that all the Harps had? Um, children I don't know about. Like, the, the children of, of the two, of, you know, the Harps' children's with their captive wives, I don't know what happened to them. Um, I don't know if they were even necessarily fully real. Uh, but the wives, though, after being freed... Uh, so when... Micaiah was killed and Wiley got away. They were just kind of like left there. Um, the women ended up relatively fine though in the grand scheme of things. I mean, as far as lives and everything go, mental state, I can't imagine they were great, but I mean, they did, they did okay enough. Um, they were caught when Wiley fled the scene and they were taken to a courthouse, but after they were there for long enough, they were released. Um, Sally Rice Harp went back to Knoxville to live with her dad. Susan Wood and Maria Davidson um, stayed in Russellville for a while, and by the early 1800s, both of them had remarried, if you can even call what they had a marriage, um, and then they had children and successful families. So all in all, they ended up living um, pretty relative lives, and honestly, the Harp brother cousins really got what they deserved at the end of the day. Um, happy that that guy was able to get his vengeance for his wife and son. That must have been really pleasant for him <laughs> to get that vengeance on the situation that's it that was a really tough one for my first one back after hiatus and after talking for 41 minutes man, I'm losing my voice <laughs> I'm out of practice um this research wasn't really easy so I apologize if I got any of the information correct and I I promise with time I'll get better at doing podcasts again I really I'm out of my element and just really excited to be here. So if you listened to this and you're still here, um, welcome to my passion. I This is something I really enjoy doing and I'm, I'm happy to be doing it again. It gives me a lot of fulfillment to, to get to the end of this and just know that I, I did it, you know? I did the damn thing. Um, I look forward to more podcasts in the future and, you know, next thing you know, we'll be hitting number 100, right? Cool. Well, I'll see you all next week. If you want uh, content that I post content every single day on Instagram. I'm figuring out TikTok. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me as far as posting goes, but once I get it figured out, it's all going to be good. <laughs> With that, I'll see you in a week.